I often refer, especially in these, these sort of more familial settings, when it's, when it's just kind of us on Wednesday night, um, to our, our, our church's confession of faith. There are some who would say that Baptists have never been a confessional or a creedal people, but that is not fair to Baptist history. We have had down our history broadly as Baptists, and even specifically as Southern Baptists, we have, we have had various confessions of faith at various times. They do not outrank Scripture, but I bet I don't have to convince you that saying, well, we just believe the Bible. The problem is they say that at the Watchtower building in Brooklyn, and they say that at that big old temple in Salt Lake City, and they say it at that domed facility over in Rome. So for the purpose of loving clarity, it is not a bad thing for a group of believers to say, we believe the Bible and this constitutes some commonly held conclusions we have drawn, which is what a confession is, especially in Baptist life where the churches are not bound to it in the same way we would be if we were in a more hierarchical denomination. McGregor Baptist Church has chosen to embrace the, the year 2000 version of the Baptist faith and message as our church's confession of faith. A very positive value of that is it gives us, it gives us, it gives us boundaries around what any of us can say our church believes. If someone says, well, what does your church believe about fill in the blank? And the answer is not a citation of our commonly articulated confession. You're out of bounds. I'm out of bounds. Our church believes, and, and we have a confession. I think that is of value. Again, we place it in its in its context, it is subordinate to God's word. It is also um, fairly broad. The Baptist faith and message is not intended to be a meticulously detailed confession of faith. <clears throat> Buy me a Coke Zero and sit down with me and I'll share with you two or three areas where I wish they had tightened some things up a bit. Um, we jokingly say one can believe more than the Baptist faith and message on a topic. One cannot believe less or in contradiction to and be a, a, a member in good standing of this church. I'll chase this rabbit for a minute. Had a, had a, had a very, it's been some time ago, probably years, it's certainly years, where um, a, a prospective member we ask on the member application, and this is no secret, some of you have been through our membership process. We ask about affirmation of our church's confession of faith. Why would you want to be a, and it's not our elders' confession of faith, it's for heaven's sakes, not Russell's confession of faith. 
It is a confession of faith that the body of Christ at McGregor, which is a congregationalist body, which, by the way, says something about what we believe about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. When you do congregationalist polity, you are making a statement about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. I would argue that when you don't do congregationalist polity, you're also making a statement, I don't think a good one, about the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. At any rate, I digress. The confession, the individual on their membership application, when they were asked the yes or no question, do you affirm our church's confession of faith? They checked yes, and then they said, with some exceptions. Well, that's going to make for a fun conversation in a prospective <laughs> member interview, right? Like, I'm going to let that pass. So I said, okay, tell me about your exceptions. And the individual said, well, I was baptized by immersion after I was saved. But I don't think it ought to be a condition of church membership. And I said, well, my friend, the good news is you and I are neither obligated nor empowered. I am obligated to a point of view on that matter. Now, thankfully, it's also a point of view I hold. But um, why would you want to join a church whose confession you don't believe? He ended up withdrawing from the membership process. That's okay. It doesn't make him a substandard Christian. It doesn't make us a substandard church. We have a confession of faith. So it seemed wise to me since Article 2, Section C of the Baptist Faith and Message addresses God the Holy Spirit. Since that's where we're heading, and we will be looking, it's going to be a Bible drill night. I've cheated. I've printed them all out on sheets of paper so my old eyes and the fluorescent light don't leave me fumbling about in my Bible. I cheated and printed it out nice and big on a sheet of paper. I've, several sheets of paper I've got up here. But if you want to track along, you get to play Bible drill in either your Bible or your app. So we'll be looking at a lot of Scripture tonight, but, but I wanted to open with this. This is what the McGregor Baptist Church believes about God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God, fully divine. He inspired holy men of old to write the scriptures. Through illumination, he enables men to understand truth. He exalts Christ. He convicts men of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He calls men to the Savior and affects regeneration. At the moment of regeneration, he baptizes every believer into the body of Christ. He cultivates Christian character comforts believers, and bestows the spiritual gifts by which they serve God through his church. He seals the believer unto the day of final redemption. His presence in the Christian is the guarantee that God will bring the believer into the fullness of the stature of Christ. He enlightens and empowers the believer and the church in worship, evangelism, and service. Not every sentence of that has to be written exactly the same way you'd write it. Um, but there we go. Tonight, my assignment, and as is so often the case with me, 
It ends up being me. I need to, my discipline is to keep myself in bounds tonight because my assignment tonight is the personhood and deity of God the Holy Spirit. I want to run into the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the functions of the Holy Spirit, but I do that and two things happen. First, we're here way late. And second, well, we got this whole term to deal with those things. So, the personhood of the Holy Spirit. I, um... I am not a charismatic. I believe that one can make that statement as a statement of distinction, not division. I also am not from South Dakota. It doesn't mean I have any, I can explain why I'm not from South Dakota. I can also explain why I'm not a charismatic, but I have Friends who love Jesus who are, and I have no bone to pick. That sets up my story to a point I want to make. My oldest son, Philip, who's a member of McGregor, attended, uh, did his undergraduate degree at Southeastern University, a, 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 a very nice university up in Lakeland. It was a good distance from home for us. It was a good cultural fit for him. He had some friends back and forth to Southeastern, it's a good school. It's a good school. Like every college, I would say it's not for everybody. That's why there's a bunch of colleges. It is, however, an Assembly of God school. Um, Philip has been a believer since he was a small child and is fairly well grounded in his faith. More than that. Knows what he believes, knows why he believes. He came home sometime in his first semester. And, and his friend group was pressuring him to get it. What is it? It, among his peer group, it was the Holy Spirit. Get it. It. The Holy Spirit is not an inanimate force. The Holy Spirit is not an effect. The Holy Spirit is not a great power in the universe. The Holy Spirit is a he. The Holy Spirit is as much a person as Jesus Christ is a person, as God the Father is a person. Next week, we'll be talking about the Trinity in here. You can't talk about the Holy Spirit being a person without, you're, 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 you're foreshadowing, you're going to have to deal with the Trinity. Because what we are not is tritheistic. But Orthodox Christianity is Trinitarian going all the way back to the New Testament, at least, I would argue further. There are, I have heard, I have heard 
God the Holy Spirit referred to as it in too many settings with my own ears. Please let us take care. You would never call Jesus it. It is disrespectful to the living God, the Holy Spirit, to depersonalize him. The claim, uh, the, the use of it typically is a sort of a depersonification of the spirit into the realm of being some force or power. And you're, you're a baby step away from pantheism when you do that. From there being some great spiritual force that binds the whole universe together, which is pagan. And there's a name for that stripe of paganism. It's pantheism. All is God. Bubba, this podium is not God. Your chair is not God. God is God. And yes, God, the Holy Spirit, is omnipresent. We'll talk about that. But he is a he. Um, I want to give you six, six truths about God, the Holy Spirit, that would not be true if he weren't a person. I'm, well, Russell, Brother Russell, why are you giving us six? Because I don't have time to give you 50. All right? I think these will establish it. The first one, the obvious one, number one on my list, is he is referred to with masculine pronouns. Masculine pronouns. John 16, verses 13 through 14, in the, in the midst of that great last night of earthly ministry discourse from Jesus. The longest recorded discourse from Jesus in all four Gospels is the night before the cross in the Gospel of John. Not that long ago, we went through the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings, and we were in this last night, I think, for a month and a half. It's, it's chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and part of 18 of a 21-chapter Gospel. It's, it's essentially a third of it. Jesus telling his disciples, John 16, verses 13 and 14, when the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He had lots of opportunities to say it there, didn't he? Um, and, and it's a little bit more profound than the English would tell you. Because the word for spirit, grammatically, in, in, as with many um, Romance languages, uh, noun gender is very, very important in Greek. And unlike English, um, the declensions for gender are, are very, very rigid. And the word for spirit is pneuma, which is a grammatically feminine noun. It's the same, by the way, as the word for wind. Hebrew does the same thing. The word for spirit and the word for wind is the word ruach in Hebrew. It's pneuma in Greek. Pneuma, from which comes the English word like pneumatic, air-driven. Air it's, it's almost a pun. When Jesus told Nicodemus, you, 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 uh, the wind blows where it will and you can't see it, so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit, it's the same word. 
context makes it clear what he's talking about, just as happens all the time in English. But when he uses masculine singular pronoun, he, to refer to the spirit, pneuma, a feminine noun earlier in this sentence, he's mis, he's bending the grammar intentionally. It, he's, he's making a deliberate grammatical mistake to force the point that the pneuma is not only a person, it's a he. His, his listeners would have noted that as particular emphasis, emphatically. Happens again in, uh, well, happens lots of places, but Paul does the same thing in Ephesians 1, verses 13 through 14. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, speaking of Jesus, were sealed with the promise Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee? That who there is masculine. It's a masculine uh, cognate in the original. It's personal pronouns masculine being used consistently for the Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? So first, the use of masculine pronouns. Second, he's a person, not a force. Second, we see in his association with Jesus' work in ministry. Jesus, again, back in that last night discourse, John 14, 16, told his disciples, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Um, the Holy Spirit will be one who is another, but another of very similar nature to me. Um, not, not a different helper, another helper. The word there, another, is another of the same sort. John 14, 16. Also John 16, 7. Two chapters later, same evening, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. Well, that's, that's an intriguing statement. Jesus says, you, my followers, are going to be better off because, and he's not speaking here of the benefit of his death on the cross. He has a lot to say about that. Here he's speaking of specifically the benefit of the departure of God the Son and the coming of God the Spirit. Can you think of any benefit for that? And don't overthink it. Let, let, I think there might be a very simple answer that comes out when we think about the benefit of the presence of God the Spirit as opposed to the presence of God the Son for the disciples and the work they were about to be doing. He's not going away. It's hard for one person to be in multiple places. Among the various characteristics of his self-emptying, when he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but, but emptied himself, Philippians. The, the, during the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, while he had awareness and knowledge that was not as bounded as yours, he was most certainly not omnipresent. Right? The man Jesus Christ walking the earth 
could not be in every situation with every Christ follower. However, as we live with and within the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, He is everywhere and in everything. That's a benefit. I wish I could have been around to observe the earthly ministry of Jesus. Jesus here tells his disciples, there's coming disciples who'll be far better off than you are, which is, which is a remarkable statement. The person of the Holy Spirit is with us as an extension of the ministry of Jesus. Number three, his interaction with the congregation. He interacts as a person with the congregation. I, uh, one of the primers, I think, for congregationalism is the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. I think there's, that chapter is a, it is a gold mine with veins running in every direction. But one of the veins, one of the, one of the, um, valuable lenses to look at Acts 15 is to look at congregationalism, to look at uh, elder-led congregationalism, ironically, is very much on display in Acts 15. It's the Jerusalem Council. It's circa AD 50, maybe as late as AD 51, but right in there. Paul has been on the first missionary journey. He has had great success seeing the gospel impact both Jews and Gentiles. He's been up through the Roman province of Galatia in South Central Asia Minor, now modern Turkey. He's planted churches. He has seen God the Spirit move, no question. But meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, the, the greatest um, controversy of the first decades of Christianity has come down to a shouting match. And the question, 20, 20 centuries later, it doesn't, 21 centuries later, this, you know, what controversy? But in the moment, it was huge. Can Gentiles come into a right relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from an on-ramp that has nothing to do with Jewish law or culture. Sure they absolutely can. But those were fighting words in Jerusalem in the late AD 40s. That sure can might get you bounced out of a predominantly Jewish church in that time in that place. Your conclusion is exactly the right conclusion. But we got there the hard way. And, and so the, the church at Jerusalem by this time the apostles have begun to scatter and are not involved two decades after the ascension. They're not involved in the day-to-day -day operation of the church at Jerusalem. The church at Jerusalem has elders and the elders are shepherding that church. Every time church leadership is on display in the New Testament after the apostles, every church has Multiple elders. There is not a single exception. I went way too many years either not knowing or not attending to that fact. Test me. It's a fascinating thing. Once you, it's one of those things that be warned once you see it, you won't unsee it. Multiple elders. One of the elders, the one that is often most prominent 
is James, the half-brother of Jesus, author of the book of James. He plays a role in the Jerusalem council, but he's not throwing his weight around. The apostles are present, some of them. They all kind of share their argument that you can be saved apart from the law. My favorite argument in the whole chapter is Simon Peter's argument. He says, the reason we can know that you don't have to keep the law to be saved is none of us clowns have ever kept the law. <laughs> it's a great argument. You know, you guys have your theory discussion over there all you want and even talk about snipping the little boys. But if you're going to say that keeping the law is a prerequisite to salvation, nobody ever has been or will be saved. Hello. Once they have their conversation, they sit down and they craft a letter. They have their conversation. Listen, listen to what happens. And I'm actually getting somewhere. Mark's back there going, you do know that this is not church history and this is not the doctrine of church leadership. I'm getting somewhere. The ministry of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Conclusions begin to be reached. Verse 22 of Acts 15. When it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, that is when they had consensus among the apostles and the elders of the church with the whole church. On as momentous an issue as there can be, shall we have a gospel of grace? The congregation was called upon to either concur or fail to. They concurred. A letter is written to communicate those conclusions. Lots of stuff to say about that letter. I will have some discipline. At the end of that letter, as they close the letter, verse 28. For it has seemed good, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to reach the following conclusions. There is no mention of the Holy Spirit in the immediate preceding verses. What there is in the immediate preceding verses is that it seemed good to the whole church. There's no mention in verse 28 of it seeming good to the whole church, but it's seeming good to God the Spirit. That tells you a lot about congregationalism. It tells you a lot about the ministry of the Holy Spirit among the people of God. For it to seem good to the whole church and for it to seem good to the Holy Spirit were taken as interchangeable. He's a person, and he moves through his people. His ministry to the congregation. Number four, get a little simpler now, since it's after seven. <laughs> um, he has a will. Um, I like the book of Acts, so often, often I will, the things that pop into my head first are things from the book of Acts. Acts 13, going back a couple of years, this is the commissioning of Paul's first missionary journey out of the church at Antioch of Syria. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets, of, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Number, verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. He has a, here's what, I want, here's what I want from you. 
I have a will in this matter and I am expressing it. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 11, speaking of the distribution of spiritual gifts. All these are empowered. He's just come out of a list of spiritual gifts. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. God the Spirit is God. It is God the Spirit that is the um, empowerer and apportioner of spiritual gifts. He's a person. He's making decisions. He's exercising his will. Now I know there's going to be a Wednesday night in the future where someone will have the privilege of talking to you about spiritual gifts. I will add my foreshadowed conclusion. As for you, my brother or my sister, do not be so humble, in quotes, as to conclude that there is no way that God the Spirit has gifted you to serve the, the, the body of Christ. Oh, yes, he has. There is a unique capacity to serve the body of Christ that he has built into you. It is incumbent on your leaders to help you be equipped to, to discover and exercise that gift. It is incumbent upon you to discover and exercise that gift. Um, the empowering of the congregation with spiritual gifts is a key ministry of God the Spirit, and I'll stop teaching somebody else's lesson now. <laughs> but just know that God the Spirit is willful in how those gifts are distributed. It's not accidental. His will. Number five, he's intelligent. He knows stuff. Back to John 14. If you're going to talk about the personhood of the Holy Spirit, you cannot escape uh, John 14. Jesus, again, speaking to his disciples the night before the cross, says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Well, if he's going to teach us all things, what does he have to know? All things. I knew y'all were the advanced class. <laughs> he's intelligent. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 through 11. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person, which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God, that is God the Father, except the Spirit of God. That's a, that's a strong affirmation, not only of his personhood, but also his deity in that he knows what God the Father knows. And then a classic verse on, um, on his emotion. He can be grieved. Ephesians 4, verse 30, grieve not the spirit.
God the Holy Spirit is a he. He's a person. Well, my assignment tonight is twofold, and that's good because I've got a little time left. Not only the personhood of the Holy Spirit. Any questions about the personhood of the Holy Spirit? Anything that needs to be chased down there? Could you repeat number two again? Number two of my list is his association with Jesus' work in ministry. He is personally continuing the ministry of God the Son. Thank you. All the, all, everybody in the world but me is so good at using those screens and those slides and all that, and I'm just a legal pad. When I have great slides, it's usually because Brother Mark has helped me. He's a... Okay. Yes. How is it that so often the Holy Spirit is forgotten, not mentioned? I mean, we hear God the Father constantly, we hear God the Son constantly, and to me, it's rare to hear the Holy Spirit. There is a... The question is, why doesn't the Holy Spirit get more shelf space? Now, you didn't use that word, so I've... But I think we're on the... Okay. I think there is a healthy reason, and I think there is an unhealthy reason. I'll start with my unhealthy one so I can end on a happier note in answering your question. I think the unhealthy reason is, in, especially in recent church history, recent Christian history, I think there has been so much reaction against our charismatic brothers and sisters that we have almost given away the turf. We don't talk about the Holy Spirit. They, they talk about the Holy Spirit. We don't sort of thing. Now, that, that's as unhealthy as all get out. I said that, right? But I think there's a little bit of gun shyness. Well, if we talk about the Holy Spirit too much, people will think that we're a part of that movement. Now, that's an unhealthy. I also think, however, there is a healthy possibility. Jesus said that when he comes, he'll speak of me. A big part of the ministry of God the Holy Spirit is to illuminate God's word and glorify God the Son. And so quite often, it is, it is an agency role in elevating the Word of God written and the Word of God living and they are being elevated, God the Son and God's written word, by the ministry of God the Spirit. He's there. He's just not... He is not the focus of his own promotion, so to speak. Okay. So, I think that's pretty healthy, to join God the Spirit in, in exalting God the Son. But we ought not be gun-shy about God the Spirit either. The Word of God has a lot to say about Him. Is that fair? It is. Okay. And is Good. it fair to pray to the Holy Spirit? Yeah. You would pray to God the Father. You would pray to God the Son. You would pray to God the Spirit. Um, they are, and, and again, I don't, wanna, I, don't wanna, I don't even want to put my toe in the water of the Trinity because, A, got that next week, um, and, and B, it's, if you, if you have an utterly clear, absolute, metaphorically driven, clarifying illustration that finally and fully explains the Trinity, you'll probably lie about other stuff as well. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a deep mystery. 
we acknowledge and affirm the Trinity because there is but one God. God the Father is God, God the Son is God, and God the Spirit is God, and there is but one God. And once you put those affirmations side by side, you have painted yourself into a Trinitarian corner, and there you are, as all Orthodox Christianity has been from the beginning. So, all right. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. We don't usually, at least I don't think, of praying to the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Is there a danger in compartmentalizing the persons of the Trinity? Your, your, your statement and your question are not necessarily linked together. In other words, I don't know that praying to a, a particular person of the Trinity necessarily tumbles into that sort of compartmentalization. It is fascinating that that concern doesn't come up when we pray in Jesus' name. Are we in danger of differentiating too much between God the Father and God the Son? Pray to the Father too. Right. So my, 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 therefore, the same, the same sort of safety you have in praying to either the Son or the Father, I would contend perhaps that that safety extends to praying to the Spirit as well. Um, now, I think I'm all, I'm trying to retrace my, my own, I think I might be all over the place in my praying, which surprises no one who knows me, um, in terms of uh, praying to my Father, and then, Lord Jesus, I wish you were, and the Holy Spirit, I wish you would, and, you know, I suspect he gives me broad latitude. Um, but, yes, we must not lapse. Whatever we believe about the Trinity, we are not tritheistic. We do not believe in three gods. We are not modalistic. That's one of the classic errors that is making a big comeback. And I'm sorry, Mark, I'm, I'll, I'll come off my Trinity wagon in a minute. Modalism is the view that there is one God that sometimes is on one channel, sometimes is on another channel, and sometimes is on another channel. That is, he switches modes. That is an old, old heresy called modalism. And it is... It is falsehood. God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, God the Father all exist eternally. He is not in the Father mode, and then he comes to earth as Jesus in the Son mode, and now he ministers to the church in the Holy Spirit mode. That's heretical, right? So no modalism, no tritheism. Brother Merle, that looked like a hand raise. Can you give me an example of somebody praying to the Holy Spirit in Scripture? No. But that's, that's, no, I can't. But that's, well, I cannot. That's, at strongest, that's an argument from negative, right? Arguments from silence are hard. And it's a big book, Merle, and I, I readily confess. I uh, yeah. I've never dug around in scripture for one, but even if there's not one, it's a, it's that, that might. When God, when Jesus taught us how to pray, how did he teach us how to pray? He prayed to the father. He wasn't going to pray to himself. Um, again, the, the, uh, the model prayer, you and I would agree, the model prayer is not an exhaustive paradigm of all we can ever 
all we can ever do in prayer. There's it's too few words. Besides the Lord's Prayer, right. there's other teaching of Jesus how to pray. I agree. I agree. Fair enough. And there may be an argument from silence to be made that since we don't have good examples of praying to our Lord the Holy Spirit, a friend of mine wrote a book with that as a title and it took me aback. Um, if we could say our Lord Jesus and our Lord God the Father, and anyway, rabbits. All right. <laughs> I have a friend who likes to poke sharp sticks in people with his books. He's fun to read. The deity of the Holy Spirit. The deity, the godness of the Holy Spirit. We, um, we, are, we are surrounded, especially in North America, the two largest and most visible North American cults both deny the deity of Christ. They have very little... They don't get along well, but they have in common, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, deny the deity of Christ. Now, neither of them say they do. They're squishy as all get about it. Get out about it. That, that nice moral Mormon neighbor of yours who wants very much for you to believe that you and he believe the same stuff. He'll throw at you all the same words. He's got a way different dictionary. And the Jehovah's Witness at your door wants to begin. Once he picks up on the fact that you are a Bible-believing Christian, his whole tactic is to carve out all the areas where we agree, we agree, we agree. Here's your question for them regarding the deity of Christ. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is as much God as God the Father is God. Yes. You do, they don't. <laughs> if you ask a Mormon, well, do you believe that Jesus is God? They'll say, well, of course. Just like you will one day be. <laughs> They'll answer that question with a yes. Ask a Jehovah's Witness, do you believe Jesus is God? Well, yeah. Small G. But if they make it a yes or no question, they're going to answer yes. But when you ask them, do you believe that Jesus Christ is God to the same degree God the Father is God? And I always smile and say, and by the way, if you need more than one word to answer that question, you're a heretic. Go. <laughs> well, it's that, that, that. Oh, man, you just you gave me a whole sentence. That was a one word question. <laughs> All right, here we go. Um, interchangeable references. What do I mean? Isaiah 6, verses 8, 9, and, uh, yeah, 8 and 9, the commission of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is, is speaking and he writes, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Isaiah in his calling and commission is hearing from God. Acts 28, Paul is in Rome. It's the end of the book of Acts. Speaking to the Jews in Rome, he says, and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. Paul said this to them. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. In Isaiah, we learn that it was God speaking to the prophet Isaiah. In Acts, we learn it was God, the Holy Spirit, speaking to the prophet Isaiah. The, the, Paul is quoting Isaiah 6. 
citing it anyway. And he focuses on a particular person of the Trinity used interchangeably in his citation of Isaiah. That's because when God spoke to Isaiah, when God the Holy Spirit spoke to Isaiah, God was speaking to Isaiah. The Holy Spirit is God, not merely a person. He's God. Romans 8, verses 9 and 10. Again, this interchangeability dynamic. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, well, in the previous sentence, it was the spirit of God dwelling in you. In verse 10, it is Christ in you because they are both God and can be used interchangeably where God is in view. Here's another crystal clear example. Isaiah, I mean, Acts 5. You remember the story of Acts 5? Acts, Acts 5 is Ananias and Sapphira. Um, when I was a much younger and much ruder teacher, I actually preached a sermon one time entitled, How to Die in Church. <laughs> I would never do that now. Well, not until we get to the book of Acts, maybe someday I will. Ananias and Sapphira, for context, at the end of chapter 4, the church in Jerusalem is in a, at a time of great economic pressure and stress. And in Acts chapter 4, the last paragraph of the chapter, there's a, there's an, a spontaneous outpouring of generosity by the church. People are, are selling stuff and bringing it to meet needs within the church. And it's a, it's a beautiful display. One of the people who does that is Barnabas. His real name, by the way, is Joseph. He's Joseph from Cyprus. But he picked up the nickname Barnabas because of, of who he was in the church. Barnabas means son of encouragement. I call him encouragement boy. And every time you see him in the book of Acts, he's one of these, oh, come on, this is going to be great kind of people. Just That's who he is. You know people in your life like that. They're, they're just encouragers, and Barnabas was that. Barnabas came and said, you know what? I think it's fantastic that other people can be blessed by this. <sighs> you know, and, and in that it is narrated in the book of Acts, they weren't, they weren't terribly secretive about their generosity. I know Jesus said some things about personal almsgiving in the Sermon on the Mount, but the personal almsgiving in the Sermon on the Mount is not the reason we keep giving records confidential. That's far more cultural than it is biblical. But there was a problem, an outgrowth. Because Barnabas, Barnabas was acknowledged. Man, we appreciate, my, my family's one of the ones that's going to eat this week because of your generosity. We just, you know, there was that. Back of the room was a married couple named Ananias and Spira. I believe they were believers. I believe they got, they, they got benched. Uh, they got sent to the locker room a bit early, but I don't believe they were lost. They were just messed up. Or better to say, they messed up. Look at Barnabas. Look at the notice he's getting. You know, we could have that. Do not fall in love with being applauded at church. Especially if your ministry is one that might tend to be public. If you're a fantastic musician, if you teach, 
I'm not against applauding in church, but please, please let us not fall in love with it. And especially if any of it's ever directed at you, don't fall in love with it. Because you might find yourself feeling left out if and when it's directed at somebody else. Ananias and Sapphira decided to get in on some of that oh-so-sweet Barnabas acknowledgement. But they faked it. They faked it. And um, they, they sold some stuff, and they brought part of the money. Now, Peter makes it clear, while it was yours, you didn't have to sell it. And when you sold it, you didn't have to give all of it. The problem was not that they were more tempered in their generosity. That's not the sin Ananias and Sapphira committed. The sin they committed is they conspired together to, to present one reality while living another. And look at, look at Peter's indictment. Acts 5, verses 3 and 4. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? But you didn't have to do anything. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You didn't have to give all of it. Why is it that you have contrived this deed, that is deception, in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Verse 3. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Verse 5. You have lied to God. That's the simplest verse I use when I'm trying to demonstrate to somebody that the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is God. Others. He is omnipresent. If he has the attributes of God, he's God. Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shell, you are there. Where shall I go from your spirit? Those two verses underscore the omnipresence of God, the Holy Spirit. We've already read 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11, that God the Spirit knows the thoughts and minds of God the Father. He is omnipresent. He is also omniscient. And he is eternal. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. He was there. When all things that are created were being created, God, the Holy Trinity, already was and had always been. He is a person, and he is God.